Here's the main application of these two chapters in one simple sentence. Are you ready? The main application of these two chapters in one simple sentence. Ready? Start to obey the Lord and don't stop. That's it this morning. If you heard that, if you accept that, you've got the whole thing. Start to obey the Lord and don't stop. Now that's easy to say, but it's hard to do. And I'm glad that God has given us these two chapters of his holy word to build it into us as we get them into us. For the last month and a half, we have been in the sweetest part of the book of Jeremiah. Chapters 29 through 33 are often called the book of hope. Have you felt that the last month? The book of hope or the book of comfort? The book of promises? Because in those chapters, we got wonderful promises like Jeremiah 29, 11, a hope in a future, true prosperity. We, we heard promises of a great restoration, the turnaround of all turnarounds, the reversal of the reversals. We heard promises of an everlasting love. We got the promises of the new covenant. Amen, Ron? The new covenant that makes a new creation, a better, unbreakable covenant that makes new people. On the inside, a covenant that makes people new. These chapters have been so sweet as they tell us the great and unsearchable things that God has in store for his people. Well, in chapter 34, we turn the page from the book of hope to something that could be called the book of failure, or the book of failures. For from chapter 34 to at least 39, and probably all the way to 45, we return to the bleak, sad doom of Jeremiah. All the tears, all of the brokenness. There are here several stories of failures. Many of them, Jeremiah is interacting with the last two major kings of Judah, Jehoiakim, who hated his guts, and Zedekiah, who hated his message and put Jeremiah in prison. Remember that from the last couple weeks? And these guys were thumbs-down kings. They failed to lead Judah in righteousness and instead led it straight into the besieging arms of Babylonian exile. These chapters would never play on Caleb. You're never going to hear a song from Jeremiah 34 through 39 on positive and encouraging Caleb. They are not positive. They are not encouraging. But they are God's word. And they were written for us today. The Bible says that these chapters of Jeremiah are God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, these chapters are more on the rebuking side of things, at least towards Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And they're on the warning side for you and me. They are written here in our Bible so that we learn the lessons that Judah failed to learn, such as start to obey the Lord and don't stop. And in typical Jeremiah style, he teaches these lessons through strange prophetic illustrations. Just like he had to wear that wooden yoke. Remember that? A few weeks ago? And then the iron one? And that strange sash thing? And how he had to go to the potter's house? Well, in today's story, Jeremiah goes on another prophetic 
field trip. This time to visit the Rechabite family. Do you know about the Rechabite family? Probably most of us opened our bulletins today and thought that Misty had some kind of a typo there. The what's it family? Rechabite? What is that? A bite of Recca? What, what are we talking about here? Is that Vegemite? What, what, what is that? Well, this family, the Rechabite family, was stranger than its name. They were weird. This is a weird family. This is the only chapter in the whole Bible about them. And it's a weird story. But that's chapter 35. In chapter 34, the Lord sends Jeremiah to someone else first. He sends him to King Zedekiah. Look with me at chapter 34, verse 1. While Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms and peoples in the empire he ruled were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding towns, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Go to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp, but will surely be captured and handed over to him. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Now stop there for a second. This prophecy apparently came around the same time as the last two chapters. Babylon is at the door. Jeremiah seems to have a little bit more freedom of movement, or maybe he just had access to Zedekiah. And the Lord sends him this message. And the Lord makes sure that we know that it was all from the Lord. Three times in just two verses. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. And his message is not positive or encouraging. But it is true. Zedekiah's kingdom will fall. And Zedekiah will see the king of Babylon with his own eyes and end up in Babylon and die there. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is actually one of the last things that Zedekiah will ever see because he's going to have his eyes cut out of his head. Now, it's not as bad as it could be. Zedekiah is not going to get a bullet to the head either or his head chopped off. In God's mercy, Zedekiah will die of natural causes in prison, in exile, but not of violence. Verse 4. Yet hear the promise of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord says concerning you. You will not die by the sword. You will die peacefully in shalom. As people made a funeral fire in honor of your fathers, the former kings who preceded you, so they will make a fire in your honor and lament. Alas, O master. I myself make this promise, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet told all this to Zedekiah king of Judah in Jerusalem while the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah that were still holding out, Lachish and Azekah. These were the only fortified cities left in Judah. Now it's interesting, the uh, archaeologists have found letters from Lachish from that exact time. They're currently in the British Museum and they tell the same story about holding out against Babylon to the very end. One of them says that they can no longer see the lights of Azekah. They've gone down. Eventually, Lachish will go down, and then Jerusalem will go down, 
Eventually they all went down. Why? Well, by now we know. Because Jeremiah has been a broken record about the broken covenant for 40 years. They're going down because they had one job and they failed to do it. They disobeyed the Lord. They did not do what he said to do. Judah did not listen or obey. And the next section gives an illustration of that from the last days of Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials and people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. That sounds good, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Now, we don't know exactly why Zedekiah did this, but it was a good thing that he did. He got the people of Jerusalem to agree to emancipate their fellow Israelites. I'm not sure why the people agreed to do that. They're obviously going to lose money on the deal. Perhaps they thought they could then get away with not feeding those people. Oh, no problem. Not mine at all. Not, not my responsibility. Or perhaps they thought it would be, they would be more likely to fight the Babylonians if they were free. Oh, you're free. Here's a sword. Go fight. Or maybe, just maybe, it was an attempt to obey at the last second the law of the Lord. Maybe to try to show the Lord, oh, oh, we're repenting, we're repenting. Because they were not supposed to hold their countrymen in slavery for more than six years, right? This kind of slavery was not based on race or kidnapping or conquest, but was a safety net for the Israelites so that Hebrew families could get out of debt. And each slave was supposed to be freed by the sabbatical year, the seventh year, or freed with everyone, no matter how many years it had been, when the year of Jubilee came around, every 50 years. But apparently, they haven't been doing that, like the law said. They've just been holding them in slavery in perpetuity. And that's the opposite of how this was designed. That's disobedience. But here, now, this day, they have chosen obedience. And that's good. Point number one of two. Start to obey the Lord. And it's better late than never. Start. Find out what the Lord says we ought to do and start doing it right away. Now, most of the time, that's going to require some repentance, right? Some turning. Here, the people began to obey in the area of biblical social justice. Because the Lord loves the poor and watches out for them, we should too. We should never take advantage of the poor. And we should always seek what is just and right for them. Solomon said, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Start to obey the Lord. This goes for any area of life because in every area of life, every area of life is under the lordship of Christ. So the Lord says to refrain from obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. 
Are you obeying that? What does your social media say? Or how, how do you talk at the break room at work? What would happen if we projected your text messages up here on the screen? Would we find obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking? Start to obey the Lord. Or the Lord says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Is that easy to do? Often it's not. It, it was hard for them to give up their slaves. Too hard, they apparently thought, as we shall soon see. Repentance is hard, but it's good. Start to obey the Lord. It's not too late. Late is better than never. Turn. Start to obey the Lord. Whatever he says, start to obey him, and then don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop obeying the Lord. Which is, of course, exactly what the people of Jerusalem did. Look with me at verse 11. They agreed and set them free, but afterward they changed their mind and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. Rats. It had looked like they were maybe doing something right for a change. It looks like this was the moment when Nebuchadnezzar thought that Egypt was rising up to be a threat. And so he gave Jerusalem a little break. He pulled his guys off of the siege of Jerusalem briefly to make sure that Egypt didn't pose a problem for him. So they pulled back from the city. And everybody took a deep breath and they said, Oh man, I miss my slaves. You know, I could really use those slaves now. And they owed us that money. Let's get them back. Now we're not sure 100% why they broke their promises to liberate them, but we are 100% sure that they did go back on their word. And the Lord had something to say about that. Look at verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Here he goes again with that covenant, right? He's reminding them the history lesson. He's reminding them about Exodus. He's reminding them that all of their ancestors were slaves, and that he hates perpetual slavery, that he set them free. Verse 14. I said, after F, I said, every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. After he has served you six years, you must let him free. Read it in Exodus 21. Read it in Deuteronomy 15. It's in the law. I told you. Your fathers, however, did not listen or pay attention to me. They had their fingers in their ears. They had their sound-canceling headphones on. They kept their brothers and sisters in slavery. Verse 15. Recently, you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you've turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You forced them to become your slaves again. See, that's where they went wrong. 
They did the first part right. They repented and they started to obey the Lord. But they didn't do the second part. They stopped. And they turned back. You know that song we sing? No turning back. No turning back. They said, nah, we're going back. He uses that favorite word of his there again, shuv. Do you remember shuv? It doesn't actually mean to push. It means to turn, right? It could either mean to repent or, or just to go back in some way. He uses it in verse 15 for something good. Recently you shuved. You repented and you did what is right in my sight. But then they shoved the shuv. Verse 16, but now you have shoved, you've turned around and profaned my name. They repented of their repentance. Don't do that. Don't repent of your repentance. Start to obey the Lord and don't turn back. I'm guessing that some of us, maybe all of us, are tempted to repent of our repentance these days. It's hard to live a repentant life. It's often easier to do things the world's way than it is to do things the Lord's way. Sometimes it seems downright crazy to obey, doesn't it? By the field, right? What? It's hard to forgive. It's hard to keep bitterness at bay. It's hard to put away lust or greed or gluttony or rage. Especially when the world says that's the way that blessing lies. Do it. It's hard to not give up on obedience and repent of your repentance. But that way lies death. Look at verse 17. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you have not obeyed me, you have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen, so now I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord, freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. I will hand Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials over to their enemies who seek their lives, to the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. They're coming back. I'm going to give the order, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to the city. They will fight against it, take it, and burn it down. And I will lay waste the towns of Judah so no one can live there. Why does the Lord care so much about this? One commentator I read this week calls it the emancipation revocation. He took it back. They took back the freedom that they had promised in God's name. Right there, that tells you something, right? They made these promises in God's holy name. They made a solemn covenant. When you make a covenant in the Old Testament, you cut an animal in two, and then you walk through it. Both parties walk through it. And the point is, you can do this to me if I break this promise, right? Kind of gross, right? But effective. That's better than signing it with all the lawyers present, right? 
And then they just went back on their promise. When you and I make promises, we are involving the Lord because we bear his name. So when we break our promises, we are implicating the Lord in that too. So of course he cares. And more than that, he loves freedom. The Lord loves setting people free. That's what the cross does, right? That's what Jesus did when he redeemed us from our slavery to sin. He set us free. Why would we want to symbolize that by going backwards? So of course he cares. He hates that they have once again broken his covenant because whether or not they made a covenant together about this, they were already supposed to be doing it according to his covenant. And they weren't. Once again, they'd stopped obeying the Lord and we're going to pay for it. Which brings us, at long last, to the Rechabite family. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Sermon title, go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. Now, this is actually a flashback to an earlier time probably a decade or a dozen years before the events of chapter 34. This is during the reign of the wicked king Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. It's probably around 600 B.C. He reigned from 609 B.C. to 598 B.C. But even though it happened before chapter 34, I think it's placed here in Jeremiah to provide a comparison and contrast with it. I think Jeremiah put 35 after 34 so that we would see the difference. Because chapter 34 was about a fickle group of people who started to obey and then stopped. And chapter 35 is about a faithful group of people who started to obey and then never quit. Now they were a weird family named after their great, 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 grandfather, Rechab. And Rechab had a son named Jonadab who is mentioned once before in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 15, 16, and 17. So he gets three verses in 2 Kings, and then they show up again here in Jeremiah 35. Jonadab, son of Rechab, was a right-hand man to Jehu, who was a violent rebel against evil king Ahab in the north. He's the one who, humanly speaking, took down wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Do you remember that from 2 Kings? Kind of fuzzy, right? It's just three verses. It's hard to remember. He's the one, Jehu is the one who killed all those prophets of Baal at the time. Very zealous. He was zealous, and so was his right-hand man, Jonadab. And apparently, also, Jonadab, son of Rechab, had a strong influence over his family, which was passed down from generation to generation for more, for more than, get this, more than 200 years. Okay? So whatever whatever great 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 grandfather Jonadab said to do, they were still doing 200 years later. Jonadab had he gave his family instructions about how they were supposed to live, a special way. He had like five rules for the Rechabite family. Okay? If you're going to be in our family, you got to follow these five rules, and they followed them for over 200 years. And one of them was well, let's just see what happens. The Lord sends Jeremiah to find this family. 
and invite them to the temple and to provide them with wine to drink. So he does. I don't know how he pulls it off. He doesn't have authority over the temple. King Jehoiakim hates his guts. I don't know who was paying, but Jeremiah does it. Look at verse 3. So I went to get Jaazaniah, son of Jeremiah, different Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalayah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Maasiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine, right? So you get it in your, in your mind's eye? The whole family's gathered. They're in this room in the temple. It's kind of an official, formal situation. And he's got like these punch bowls full of wine, okay? They're sitting on the table and he, he puts a cup in front of every single one of the people in the family. And he says, drink up. All these men of God are watching, offering this hospitality. It's deeply honoring. It's the man of God who's offering it. They're all there, the whole weird exotic family. I'll tell you a little bit more about them in just a second. There must not have been that many of them because they can all fit in that one room in the temple. But they all have a cup and they're all invited to drink. And they all refused. Every single one of them. Verse 6. But they replied, We do not drink wine. Because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, here's the rest of the rules. You must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops we have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian Aramean armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Do you get a sense of how weird they were? They weren't just teetotalers, they were like nomads. They didn't have houses. It, Josh would not be able to work for the Rechabite family right? They, they, they didn't have, they never farmed. They always lived in tent structures. They lived a very intense life, right? That was a pun, a bad one, but there it was. The only reason they were in Jerusalem right then was that Nebuchadnezzar had pushed them in. Their tents, somebody just got it. Yeah. Their tents were set up inside the city walls. I'll bet everybody loved that, right? Don't you love it when you see a little tent city pop up in your town? Everybody had their eyes on these folks. They probably didn't trust them. They were different. They, they were kind of like the Amish, but not peaceful. Jonadab was not peaceful. He was a, 
his hands were bloody. And they weren't farmers, so I guess they weren't like the Amish, but they stood out. They were like the Nazarites, like a traveling group of Nazarites, but not because they had taken a vow from the Lord, but because Jonadab had told them to. Maybe they were like the Roma people who wandered from place to place in Europe, or the Fulani, like our friends the Cones have worked with, or hippies. They lived an alternative lifestyle, and it did not include the fruit of the vine. For going on 250 years, nobody in that family had had even a drop of wine. So Jeremiah has sought them out, brought them to the temple, poured out a vast quantity of wine in front of everybody. The whole nation is going to hear about this. It's going to be on the 6 o'clock news. And they all to a man say, thank you for offering us this wine. It's very generous, but we can't drink it because Grandpa Jonadab commanded us not to. It may come from a, strong, a family with a strong patriarchal leader in it, like everybody did what Grandpa said. How about 200 years later? Okay, that's the story. That's what happened. There, there isn't any, anything more to it. There wasn't a, 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 a follow-up action. My guess is that Jeremiah then replied, thank you guys for coming. That's what I thought you would say. No problem. We are not offended. We weren't trying to trick or trap you. Instead, the Lord brought you here so you could show us how it's done. You Rechabites showed us how to obey somebody and keep obeying them even under pressure. Well done. And the Lord says the same thing. Look at verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? Notice there the emphasis on his words. Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I... Yahweh have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each one of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your forefathers. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. You've had your fingers in your ears. Now, let's be very clear. The Lord is not here saying that everybody ought to do the same things as the Rechabite family. He's not saying that nobody should ever drink wine. Jesus made the best wine ever. This isn't about that. He isn't saying that believers should never build houses or never plant seeds or never have a vineyard or always live in tents. He's not saying that at all. The Lord has promised some of those very things as the blessings of shalom and prosperity on God's people. He's not even saying that all the Rechabites have to live that exact way forever, just like Grandpa said. He's saying that the people of Judah should learn a lesson from watching the Rechabites do their thing. They should be like the Rechabite family in this one key way. They should start obeying and not stop. 
The Rechabite family is one great big object lesson in relentless obedience. See, here's the logic. If this little family can go 250 years in obeying their forefather, who was just a man at best, then how much more should and could the people of God obey and keep obeying their heavenly father, who is God himself? You see it? Shame on Judah for re-enslaving their brothers and sisters. They couldn't go a few weeks without repenting of their repentance when it got a little hard. Instead, they should have been like the Rechabite family instead and stayed obedient to their Lord no matter what. No matter how funny it made them look. You know, increasingly we Christians are going to be looked at as ridiculous. The things we believe, the things we cannot go along with, we're going to get laughed at, which is often harder to live with than straight up persecution. At least it feels like it sometimes. We need to decide in advance that we're going to keep on obeying our Lord, even if the world laughs at us. Let's decide now to obey the Lord in 2023 and not stop obeying the Lord in 2023 if things get rough. Let's stick it out. Let's do the things we know the Lord wants us to do. He leadeth us, right? He leadeth us. Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Because with obedience comes blessing. Look at verse 16. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says, listen I'm going to bring on Judah and on every one living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Good job. Great example. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man to serve me. Start to obey the Lord. And don't stop. And you will be blessed. Just like the Rechabite family. 